Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 51. Psalm 51. If you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, that can be found on page 474. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that Black Bible home with you. It's our gift to you. Psalm 51. Please stand for the reading of God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we are here today because your word is our true food. So please take what is, for many of us, a familiar passage and open our eyes to see a deeper trove of treasure there today than we had previously perceived. Do this for the sake of your name. Amen. Every year here at MABC, we take the first full week of the new year and set aside a time to refocus on prayer. So you may have seen the uh, prayer guides that have been handed out. If you didn't get one, there are more at the Welcome Center in the foyer. And these guides have some content that will be useful for us throughout the week because there will be some special prayer meetings um, here downstairs in the boardroom. There are special meetings Monday at noon, Tuesday at 8.30 a.m., and Thursday at 6 a.m. Those meetings are open to anyone 
And I'm hopeful that all those times will be well attended. But if you can only make one prayer meeting this week, Wednesday night is the one to attend, if at all possible. For that time, we'll be meeting in 10 different homes. And there are lists posted on the gym doors of uh, which home you're assigned to. If for some reason you weren't included on those lists uh, for that meeting at Wednesday at 7 p.m., then please let me know after the service, or you can talk to Victor Arhin also. So why do we focus on prayer right now? Why do we do this at the beginning of every year? Well, it is a new year, and realistically, we know that no meaningful change is going to happen in our lives in 2020 unless it's the work of God. So it's a great season to think about this astounding privilege that we have of speaking directly to the one who holds all of our years in his hand. Because of Jesus, we know that God actually does receive our prayers, and actually they're described as incense that's going into his throne room, pleasing and sacred. But, you know, prayer can be intimidating for a lot of people, and uh, it can leave us with many questions. Wanting to learn more about prayer myself, uh, there was a season when I really poured myself into reading all about prayer. I would pick up any book on prayer, stories about faithful people of prayer, uh, suggestions of techniques, lists of formulaic prayers or prayers to memorize, theology of prayer, etc. And our library has some of those books. Uh, I encourage you to check them out, all very potentially useful. But the problem in my case was that while I was doing this research, I noticed that for some reason I actually wasn't praying any more than I had previously. No matter how much I read about prayer or how much I talked to others about prayer, I wasn't praying more. Well, in, in my case, I think it's because I was missing the center of it all, a heart that longed to be fully open to God. You see, it's not our technique it's not our knowledge that's most important when it comes to prayer, but it's actually our inner demeanor. We know this because we see very different prayers throughout Scripture. There's no one formula that we see replicated. We see very long prayers that seem almost repetitive. We see some short prayers that are simple and almost seem childish. Some prayers ask for something just quite directly, and others start out with this uh, moving remembrance of who God is and how he's acted in this world. So there's no one pattern. While the Lord's Prayer is, is a great place for us to start, it gives us right categories. It's not meant to limit us, and there's actually great freedom in how we pray. But the main piece is that it needs to be sincere. It needs to come from a place of truth in the inner being. We also know that our inner demeanor toward God is what makes or breaks our prayer because the Bible actually condemns prayers that approach God with the wrong heart attitude. It tells us that the prayers of the hypocrite are actually unpleasant noise in heaven. And that the way we persistently mistreat others can actually hinder our prayers from being heard. Because prayer is all about the state of your heart. Our text today models just that. So I want you to listen close to how the ancient Israelite King David, who had definitely mistreated others, could come to be restored to our good God through this well-known prayer. And I want you to see through this psalm that a broken spirit and a penitent heart is the secret to David's ongoing participation in God's purposes. So also, as we seek to become people of prayer, we must understand that this brokenness that accompanies truth in the inward being, that's an essential starting place to anything we hope to accomplish for God through prayer. 
prayer is all about, the state of your heart. Well, let's look down at Psalm 51. The introductory notes before verse 1 are actually part of the inspired text, and they remind us of the horrific situation that David created and is now facing. One lazy afternoon, he went out on his roof, and he caught a glimpse in the buildings below of a beautiful woman bathing. To put it delicately, he then stole another man's wife and then sent her back home to cover it up. She, however, became pregnant, and David's situation became desperate. Here was the executive leader of Israel's religious establishment, the one who had brought home the Ark of the Covenant, the one who loved to write and sing praises to our holy God. But David was secretly filthy. Taking it one step further, he then gave orders that were certain to make the husband accidentally killed in battle. David, the adulterer and murderer, then brought the woman back to his house as his newest wife. All smooth from there, right? No. His friend Nathan, a prophet, confronted David in a shocking manner that slapped him upside the face with the harsh reality that he was the man who had offended God and deserved death. There would be grave consequences for David's personal life and for his whole kingdom because of these acts of evil. But this psalm, Psalm 51 is David's response that grasps not for immunity from the consequences of his sin, but for renewed relationship with God himself. If it helps you to see structure to the text, I'm seeing there's three sections. So verses 1 through 9 contain a cry of repentance. Verses 10 through 12 contain a plea for inner transformation that serves as the linchpin for the whole psalm. And lastly, in 13 to 19, David is expressing a desire for God to go further and actually make good out of evil in a way that has implications far past just David himself. Well, he starts out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. When we think about the concept of mercy, of receiving mercy, we need to first admit that it's not really a popular concept in our culture to talk about sin at all. We can talk about our need for growth or understanding, yes, but, but if, why label it? Why condemn people's mistakes in such harsh terms using words like sin? So thinks our culture. And that mode of thinking makes sense if you don't think that there's an underlying structure to, the live, to our living that's set in place by a good designer. But if there is an architect to it all and a design for how to be human, then we actually do need to know if we're living according to that established framework or not. And if not, then it really is the best thing for our growth and our wholeness and our overall wellness to call sin, sin, and to deal with it not just as innocent mistakes, not just as unintended byproducts of our personality, but as sources of death and to root it out at all cost. Thankfully, we have all the help we need in that process because we do have a merciful God. On Mount Sinai, God had revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. 
David here is asking God to behave in a manner that's consistent with that self-revelation, particularly his commitment to steadfast love, which is so central to God's covenant promises to his people. So we've got a great example from David right here at the start of his prayer. In prayer, it's always a good idea to remind God of his promises and to repeat his word back to him. Not because he's forgotten it, but because we're so prone to. And this reciting of God's character and his plan, it unifies us with his purposes. And it acknowledges that any good that's in front of us must come in a way that's consistent with who God has shown himself to be. His steadfast love is what enables us to safely approach him with our sin. Because he knows his people thoroughly and he still loves us. So we can dare to know ourselves and to live transparently, first before God, which then in turn allows us to live transparently before others too. You know, I'm convinced that if there's one quality of God that we desperately need to better understand and better believe, it's God's love for his people. That love is just too abstract in our minds. We, we don't understand how his love pursues us how his love is meant to set us free, how his love is meant to be the fuel under, underneath everything that we do in our Christian life. But David did have a glimpse of the love of God for his people, and so he bases his plea for mercy on that very fact. And he has a big ask here for God to blot out his transgressions, not just use whiteout in the book, but to make it as if nothing had been written in the first place, to obliterate the records of his wrongs. He says, cleanse me from my sin. And cleanse is the same verb for if a priest were to come and to perform a ritual declaration of cleanness. He wants God to declare him free from the effects of sin. Because apart from such a pronouncement coming from outside of himself, David knows he just can't be made right. Because contact with sin is quite literally contact with death. A contamination has caught hold. There's an invisible stain that's blocking his relationship with God who is the only source of abundant life. David continues, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Do you feel this uh, building momentum in his repentance? We see that David is stricken with how he's offended God. He's just beside himself. And he's not trying to just say the magic words and move on. He's meditating on it. He's calling it transgression or rebellion, evil and iniquity. And he's using a variety of words to beg God to act. Cleanse, wash, blot out. You can see that this vocabulary and this ordering of sentences is purposeful. Take a look at this slide um, for the structure of the first nine verses. You can see how the Hebrew is organized for sort of this in and then out uh, poetic effect of repetition. Blot out, wash, cleanse. I acknowledge sin. You are faithful. I'm sinful. I acknowledge. Cleanse, wash, blot out. So we'll leave that up and we'll come back to it. Now one of the most shocking statements on the surface of this psalm is verse 4. When he says, against you, you only have I sinned. Um, excuse me? You might hear Bathsheba or Uriah's friends protesting. Let's see, there's a defiled marriage, there's a dead man, and there's a deceived nation. How in the world is this not a sin against any number of people? 
Is David here minimizing the effects of his sin? No, I don't think so. Rather, he's seeing that how he treats God, it controls everything else. It controls how he treats people who are created in God's image. So if he treats God like garbage, he's going to treat other people like garbage. And it's possible when we think about our sin to focus almost exclusively on how our actions have affected other people. Uh, Of course, we need to be mindful of that, but that's not the center of what's going on. And if we think only about how our actions affect other people, then the question becomes, are you really sorry because you've offended God? Or are you sorry because your words and actions, which you thoroughly enjoyed and would probably choose again under different circumstances, happen to here make an unintended mess and get you caught? You see, there's a world of difference. When you come clean before God, which I hope you do frequently, do you feel this weight of offending Him? Or do you only care about how others are perceiving you? Because when God is cultivating a Psalm 51 heart, it's often the uncaught sins that most grieve the one praying. No one may know about or technically be hurt by your sketchy use of the internet, your wandering eyes, or your less obvious ways of entertaining lustful thoughts. But God is deeply offended because he didn't create humans to be used in that way. No one may know about your judgmental comparisons, your hurtful insinuations, your subtle mockery of others in your head. But God knows And he is more than able to make that weaker person stand strong and happy and to bring you down hard. You see, always in our consideration of our sin, it's God's opinion that matters. It's not other people that should control our assessment of ourselves. And all this confession leads to the center statement of this first section. There was nothing faithless here on God's part. He was right to condemn David through the words of Nathan the prophet. His standard is right. And that's central to true confession. We submit to God's assessment of our lives. Even when it disagrees with the assessment we and perhaps everyone else had been working by. God is just. And David doesn't just concede that fact, but he celebrates it. He declares God to be righteous, and that's at the center of this confession. Then he goes on to contrast himself. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 5 poetically unpacks the fact that all of humanity is born into sin. It's a curse that runs through our very essence. And that's important for David to mention here because he's not confessing, whoops, Sorry, guys, I slipped up. He's not pleading, sorry, but have patience with me because I'm getting better. No, he's saying unequivocally, this is who I am, and it's a problem. I need help. His actions were contrary to what God delights in, and God has now exposed David's secret heart and given him the wisdom to be forthright, not self-protective. What's going on in your secret heart? Is God giving you the wisdom to be forthright? Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. 
Hyssop was a plant that was used in cleansing rituals that we read, we read about in the books of Leviticus and Numbers. Uh, it was used to, um, the ceremony was used to give a fresh start to people who had been cured of leprosy or whose houses had been purged of mold or um, who had previously been unclean ceremonially because they had touched a dead body or a grave. So this is ritual cleansing language that David is using, but he's not applying it to any of those outward scenarios like Leviticus and Numbers do. Rather, he's applying it to the leprosy, the mold, the death that has crept into his very being. He knows that God's whitening of what's black in his heart is the only path back to joy and gladness. And the next line is a bit shocking, as David says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. God broke the bones. It won't do for us to create a reality in our heads where pleasant things come from God and unpleasant things come from the devil. Our God is much bigger than that, and he is able to use the unpleasant things for good purposes. In this case, he seems to have afflicted David, either uh, bodily or mentally in some way, as a form of discipline, which can yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, let me be clear. Sickness is certainly not always a form of discipline from God. It's not even usually a form of discipline from God. But for David, it was. And it should be a comfort to us, I think, that our God does have control over everything in nature and therefore can act in power to answer prayers like this, to answer prayers in accordance with his will. Verses 10 through 12 start us on a new section. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And here we have a new focus for the psalm. Whereas the first nine verses express repentance and the need for cleansing, these verses go further to ask for something totally new. Not just blotting out the record of wrong, but changing the very nature of who David is so that the inclinations of his heart are different from the start. The verb create here is not used much in the Old Testament because it refers to something impossible, something only God can do. David wants God to fashion a clean source of desires within him and an inner spirit that's steadfast instead of treacherous. But why does David then pray, don't take your Holy Spirit from me? Well, that's exactly what we read happened to his predecessor, King Saul. If you remember, 1 Samuel 16 says that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul because he had twice ignored the command of the Lord and, and he had displayed a calloused heart. He wanted to please people more than he wanted to please God. Now, this taking of the Spirit... This is something, thankfully, that simply can't happen for a true disciple of Christ in this new covenant era. Because the Spirit of God doesn't merely reside upon us, but he indwells us because of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is an irrevocable gift given to seal us for the day of redemption. And so, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith until the fullness of our salvation is realized. This doesn't, however, mean that there's no parallel for us today to what happened to Saul there are a number of warning passages in the New Testament that suggest one can be deceived and actually not belong to Christ at all. And time will make that clear. 
The book of Hebrews especially shows that the deceitfulness of sin can harden a heart past the point of no return. And those who venture down that path simply will never turn back. They didn't lose the Holy Spirit, but their inability to repent betrays the fact that they never had him. This is David's worst nightmare, and it should be ours as well. If you want to be free from such a fear, then open yourself to God. Invite him to examine and reveal your motives until there would be no inconsistencies, no hidden or compartmentalized fears of your life. David has tasted something that he is desperate not to lose, the joy of salvation. As he's dealing with his sin openly, he cares more about potentially losing that joy than he does about potentially losing his earthly kingdom. This is the same David who wrote of God in Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What about you? Have you ever enjoyed God like that? Have you enjoyed God to a point where that experience makes it, it, makes it easier for you to think about losing your career or losing your family than about losing your relationship with God in this life. If not, then David wants to be your tutor on the path to that sort of joy. And if you have experienced it, then you will be praying with David that God will cause you to stand firm with a willing, not a stubborn spirit. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So verse 13 brings us to our third section, a new train of thought that not only might the Lord be merciful, not only might he be able to make me new and clean, but he could actually use this experience in my life as a foundation for great good. But we need to take care not to run to this type of prayer too quickly. You see, Satan is eager to hijack our process of repentance and to suggest, eh, you don't really need to be quiet and broken before God. Pick yourself up. It's time to turn it around and use your experience of sin to gain influence in the church. So tell your story. Let others see how pious you are because you have an exploit of faith and repentance to share. Make it clear that it was all God's work, but then get glory for yourself because you're the one reporting it. Do you see? The temptation towards self-importance can be so subtle and twisted even when we're trying to come clean with God. So don't move quickly past verses 1 through 12. Because not until that repentance has borne the fruit of humility can verse 13 even emerge as a possibility. But once it has, there is much to be learned from David's sincere desire to instruct others from his own experience. We see here that confession and restoration are not meant to be merely private acts. In fact, it's a good question whether you've truly been restored from your sin if you can't tell anyone about it even after the fact. That sin, though you may not still be committing it, clearly it still has some effect of shame over you now, and that too may be a foothold for the sin of pride in your life. 
If you don't want others to know what God has brought you through, then you can't really celebrate his verdict of you as clean, can you? Maybe it's because you care too much about other people's verdict of you if they learned about the reality of your past. Or maybe it's because you still don't really believe that God has given you the verdict of clean. In either case, I want to suggest that true restoration from sin frees us up to proclaim not only the gospel generally, but it frees us to proclaim the gospel as specifically portrayed through our lives, through our being freed from the darkest times of our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to take out an ad on TV to tell everyone the grotesque details of our past sin. But it does mean that we'll relish the opportunities that God naturally brings our way to share about how he delivered us from a, a certain specific pattern of sin or perhaps how he's in the very process of delivering us right now. Can you give God glory in the midst of your mess? Don't you know that many other people may have the same sins and will be encouraged to hear about that ongoing process of God's grace triumphing in your life? And even if they don't share that same temptation or that specific sin history, they will be encouraged by your testimony of God's character which is the same for all of us in the midst of whatever darkness has allured us away from his goodness. So David doesn't try to hush up what has happened. He doesn't, he doesn't try to keep quiet this corrupt chain of events. He knows it wouldn't work anyway. People have a way of seeing what's really going on. Instead, he writes openly about it. He writes a song that would become an anthem for the people of God through the centuries because he wants to sing of God's righteousness. And so he prays, Open my lips. David understands that a heart of praise is a gift from God. It's a gift he desires because he's learned that a broken spirit and a contrite heart mean more to God than any ritual. And you can see that concept. It's, it, it's uh, found in a number of places, even in the Old Testament. But just as an example, you can look back to Psalm 50, one page earlier. I'll read uh, verses 7 to 9 and 13 to 15. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Jumping down to verse 13. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So David's broken and contrite heart, it teaches us here to give God glory in that way. Through lives that are defined by thanksgiving. Presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, even as Terry shared about last week from Romans 12. Well, after these deeply personal reflections, verse 18 moves us in somewhat of an unexpected direction. It says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. The psalm zooms out here to consider not only the renewal that's needed in David's life or in his sphere of influence, but it really turns to consider the renewal that's needed for the whole people of God because Zion is representative of our truer homeland coming down out of heaven. But why is this broader focus attached to this very personal song of repentance? Why has the, the scope of concern suddenly come to include all the people of God? It seems a little bit out of place at first. Well, I think it's a recognition that we're all in David's situation. 
When I was young and I was first learning Psalm 51, it was a bit hard for me to feel a connection to its words. Uh, by God's grace, I had never committed adultery or killed anyone. Still haven't, just to be clear. Um, <laughs> but, but then again, according to Scripture, I have, right? I have, because as the Holy Spirit granted greater self-awareness, I came to see that I too am that man. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, made it, it very clear that carrying the shadows of these desires in our hearts is as condemnable as if we actually carried out the crime. And what's more, Scripture calls us all adulterers whenever we get in bed with the world instead of remaining true to the purity of our Lord. So we all need to learn from David's example of grieving over how we've offended God because we have. But also, even if our sin isn't as flagrant as David's specific situation, the beauty of this psalm is that it shows us the depth of God's mercy. If there's hope for David, then there's hope for all of us. So David's cry to experience the compassion of God, it becomes our cry. It becomes a corporate cry for the mercy of God to be manifest in our midst. But also, I think even more helpful to this communal direction that the psalm is going is the realization that every single person's sin does affect the community. Not only if you're a king, but even if you're just a normal Christian. That's why we zoom out here to ask God to heal the whole people of God. In the words of uh, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the individual must realize that his hours of aloneness react upon the community. There is no sin in thought, word, or deed, no matter how personal or secret, that does not inflict injury upon the whole fellowship. An element of sickness gets into the body. Perhaps nobody knows where it comes from or in what member it has lodged, but the body is infected. We are members of a body, not only when we choose to be, but in our whole existence. Every member serves the whole body, either to its health or to its destruction. This is no mere theory, it is a spiritual reality. That's from Bonhoeffer's classic book, Life Together. So it's not enough for just David to be given a clean heart. We need God to do good to his people in a way that changes things for all of us. And then, verse 19 says, will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, wait a minute here. In verse 16, David said that God did not delight in the acts of sacrifice. But here, they're present in verse 19 as a picture of what will happen when God's favor has been shown. So what's going on here? Is this a contradiction? Definitely not. Do you realize that you can actually do the right thing in the wrong way and that that can make your obedience to God totally worthless? And this brings us full circle to, to thinking about prayer. Why do you pray? Because it's what Christians are supposed to do? Because your life might be easier if God gives you the changes you want? But if your heart demeanor is wrong, do you realize that your sacrifice of prayer will be an empty formality? Kind of like a conversation between estranged relatives that's devoid of meaningful content or true sympathy. You can go to all the prayer meetings you can journal, you can have a prayer list that you faithfully march through, but without truth in the inward being, without an open heart that's grieved by what grieves God, what good will it be? 
David knew what the prophets would later say even more clearly, that God hates our half-hearted, self-promoting forms of worship. He would have us leave them off entirely. But, as we saw in Romans 12 last week, there is a form of sacrifice that pleases God. It's the kind that comes after our experience of mercy, celebrating that mercy as we give glory to God with our words and actions. Not because the law prescribes it, not because our guilt demands it, but rather because the joy of our salvation births this sort of sacrifice. David foresaw that the sacrificial system of sheep and bulls and goats was pointing to something beyond itself. We see clearly on this end of the cross that atonement through the final sacrifice, Jesus Christ is powerful enough to blot out transgression, powerful enough to create a clean heart, powerful enough to build up the walls of the city of God as the people of Christ sacrificially serve with truth in the inward being. And that's why prayer is not about a method, but about a heart posture. Jesus told this story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And may our prayers likewise be pleasing in the sight of God, who loves sincerity and truth in the inward being, but sees all the hidden motivations of the heart. May we approach him this week and always with a broken spirit, a penitent heart, a bold faith that knows that in Christ he creates newness where we had introduced death. When we pray with this heart demeanor, then mercy is freely given and his steadfast love will win the day. Please pray with me now. Have mercy on us, O God. You alone are justified in your words. So give us clean hearts and mouths that praise you. Build up your church here at MABC and make us a people marked by truth in the inward being. In Christ's name, amen.